welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. There's no heroes in Test Cricket, son. Retire hurt. August guy in and he kept saying, do you need any shampoo? Do you need any conditioner? My car stunk for about a week and I couldn't get rid of the smell. But it turned out that the decanter of port had been donated to the owner of the hotel by Nelson Mandela upon his release from Robin Island and someone had nicked it. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Tenderwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a WWE legend. He was in the WWE for over 30 years and is best known for being a WWE referee. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Kyoda. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And let's have a great show here and ask all the questions you want. <laughs> we are. Uh, we intend to. Okay. Definitely. No, that's awesome. But uh, first of all, do you have any banoffee pie? Because that's my favorite dessert in England. <laughs> Sadly not, I'm afraid. Oh, that's all right. Well, I'll I don't even know what that. that is. You've banoffee never had banoffee pie? pie? Oh, nope. It's one of my favorites. That's why when when I used to look a little heavy on the telly, on Sky Telly over there in New York, I was always eating a lot of banoffee pie. That's for sure. <laughs> Before we start, we just wanted to say that if throughout this podcast, if you have any questions for us about anything about our podcast, or you have a question about autism, then please ask. We like to answer your questions too. Sure, sure. If I have any questions, I'll, I'll definitely throw them at you. But, you know, if you have all the questions, you shoot first. You get it, <laughs> Thomas. All right. We like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start to talk about your career. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Right. Okay. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? In my phone book? I'd have to say my mom. I'm sorry, but uh, it's not a wrestler. It's actually my mom. Yeah. So that's that's one of my favorites. Uh if we're gonna talk about wrestlers in my uh it's gonna be probably Ray Mysterio. Ooh. Ray Mysterio. He, it used to be could... the rock, but the rock changes numbers so many times when we went to Hollywood. <laughs> I couldn't keep up with all the new phone numbers. <laughs> if you could trade laws of anyone for a day, who would it be and why? I'm sorry, say it again, Thomas. Uh, if you could trade lies with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? I'd probably, I'd probably have to say The Rock, you know, um, just to see him the way the kind of person he was coming into the business with maybe one dollar in his pocket when he started in professional wrestling and to where he's at now because he's such a great performer and a great person. 
Um, that's why he's exactly where he's at right now on top of the world in Hollywood and wrestling and everything. And um, I would probably trading places like the old movie. I'd probably have to say the rock. Yeah. It's just such a great person and just such a phenomenal person. And he puts so much effort into everything he's done in his career and he's still going. So if you could have any superpower, what would you have and why? Hmm. Superpower. That's good. Um, I would probably have to say if I had a superpower reading minds, maybe reading minds, I would have to say I'd have to go there because I'd like to know what everybody's thinking, you know, even if they're saying something nice and they mean something bad inside their head, I would know. So I'd, I'd probably some sort of superpower. I wouldn't want to be like Superman or anything like that, but probably have to say to read minds. Or maybe see the future. That would be a good one. Yeah, but being able to see the future has its risks and its perks. True. That's true. That is true. Because sometimes you don't want to see the bad stuff coming. You just only want to see good stuff. It's mm -hmm. true. Thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. Okay. Okay. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. You grew up in New Jersey and started off in the WWE as part of the ring ring crew as a teenager. Did you always want to be part of WWE? And what are your memories of that? Memories of that? Well, the, the memories were great. Um, always had fantastic memories. Uh, and did I want to be always a part of the WWE? No, I grew up a Gorilla Monsoon's family five minutes from me, and I grew up with Joey Morella, and he was a referee, and that was Gorilla Monsoon's son. I did wrestling when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, and I would work on the ring crew and sell programs and and do all the little stuff that would need be on the event operations side of the ring crew. Um, I was a baseball player, so in the United States, baseball is very big here, and uh, I was a very good baseball player. Uh, but when my dad, um, my father took a stroke when I was 17, he took a massive stroke, and he didn't pass away Um but he couldn't work anymore. So I went back into wrestling because I knew I was making very good money at 15, 16 years old doing wrestling. So, and I needed to provide for my mom and, and my two younger sisters. And at that time, my sister, Nikki, was 12. And my other sister, Danielle, was seven. So um, when I needed to provide and I needed to step up as a man and provide for my family. So I went back into wrestling and I asked Gorilla Monsoon if I could get a full-time job back with WWF at the time, WWE. And then I went on a trial period, of course, with the company for about a year. And um, it took off from there. And, you know, I was doing ring crew with Tony Chimmel, and he was a ring announcer. I was a referee in 87. I started refereeing. Chief Jay Strombo, Rene Goulet, and Gorilla Monsoon made me uh, a referee. Joey trained me a lot, helped me through the ropes. And in 89, 1989, they made my big, big debut on, on the telly, um, and in, which was one of my biggest events that I did in front of one of the largest crowds was 1992 in Wembley Stadium in London. And we had 82,000 people there. And uh, Joey Merle actually refereed the main event, which was the British Bulldog and Brett the Hitman Hart, which was a phenomenal match and went 45 minutes and the crowd was just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, 40-something thousand people, 40,000 on one side with the horns going, eh, 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 bulldog. And then the other 40,000 were going, eh, 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 
hitman. You know, it's just so intense. And I, I want to say, be honest with you, in 1992, working in front of the largest crowd in my career on 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 the telly, that was that was the inspiration. Like, wow, look at look at this. This was just phenomenal because it was just you had goosebumps, and you're just thinking, all these people love wrestling, and we're halfway across the world from our country. And we're just, you know, and just wrestling was phenomenal and seeing how England loved wrestling and Germany and Ireland and so many countries just loved wrestling. It was just great to be a part of that company, entertaining people from all ages, from five years old to 95 years old, you would entertain. So, and that's when I really, really got the inspiration of refereeing in front of big crowds like that. Uh, The Brooklyn Brawler against... Barry Horowitz yes. was the first match you ever refereed. What are your memories of that match? Uh, I was nervous, scared, like I didn't know, but Brawler helped me out a lot. Barry Horowitz helped me out a lot. It was just, um, you know, those were the days when you put on the, the blue shirt and the bow tie, and I had that little mullet, that little stringly hair in the back. And, um, you know, I was very nervous and uh you know, and they got me through it and taught me a lot, helped me a lot, which I appreciated them always in my career. Um, and it just, yeah, I was very nervous because you really didn't want to mess up a match and not count to three count or do something wrong because, you know, that's that was my uh, first match of really trying to do something to, to prove that I could be a referee. In very the nervous. in the 90s, referees were well-known you always heard the commentators say your name or Earl Hebner or other refs and you were allowed to have a personality. No, you don't know any of the refs and they don't seem to be involved as much anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I wish they would go back to, to that, where the referee has a name, uh, to the referee. Um, you know, a referee doesn't have to have a big spotlight referee goes in and does his job and it's always calling it down the middle that's the way I felt you always call it a match down the middle um there's a lot of things when I used to be a young referee going back from the ring and I'd be slapping hands with the fans and stuff and Chief Jay Strombo Jack Lonza and some old school guys would be like what are you doing you're not you're not supposed to be slapping the fans hands you know, you're supposed to be doing your job. You come from the ring, you go back. Um, I mean, a referee is the third man in the ring. Okay, so when I always call myself the third man in the ring because I've always been the third man in the ring. Um, a referee, a good referee can make a match great and a good, uh, a bad referee can make the match bad. So, I mean, to me, your name should be it doesn't have to be said all the time, but there was just one day when, um, you know, uh, a referee's name was being said too much and people in gorilla position where before you walk out on the stage, it's called gorilla position after gorilla monsoon. Uh, and they, and then the producer had said, you know, who's, whose name is that? You know, and he didn't even know the guy's name that was refereeing the match, but he heard him on, on the telly. And Mike, I guess Michael Coles or a lot of guys were saying his name over and over. And they just canceled saying the referee's name after that for a long time. Um, which I wasn't too worried about that because my name was already established, you know, 
for many, many years at that point. But they're back, and I see it. I see it coming back slowly. But they are they are mentioning the referees' names and stuff, and they're doing many more things for the referees. They're putting on video games. They're doing a little bit more stuff for the referees, which I think is fair. So it's 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 progressively slowly progressing. Um, in the way for the referees' names getting out there, they're more recognized and everything. But a referee should not be in business for himself. A referee should be calling it down the middle, straight down, and don't oversell so much stuff as a referee. How much do the wrestlers in the ring rely on the referees to help them? Uh, I would say a lot. Uh, There's communication. There's a lot of communication between the referees. The referee... Some people think that the referee goes in there and just counts to three, counts to two, and does this, does that. A referee has so much to do in the ring. A referee has to give cues, time cues, when you're going when you're going into commercial break, when you're coming back at a commercial break. Um, a referee has to make sure concussion protocols and the talent's okay. If somebody gets hurt, they got to know whether that talent can finish. So some some people go into concussion protocols and their eyes are blurry and they still want to continue the match. Well, the referee has to make a decision whether to stop the match, just pause the match, and let the doctor check on him. Or when a ref, uh, wrestler gets cut and he's bleeding, you have to stop the match, let them hopefully stitch him up or glue it together, glue the cut together. Um, the referee has so much to do. Um, there's wrestlers that always call on the referees to give spots. So a wrestler will say something to, to the referee, and then that referee has to... He has to translate it and give it to the other wrestler and, and talk to him. So that's ref, a referee is the communication of the match. And there's so much that a referee and talent should work together with each other. Because if you're not on the same page, your match can get completely screwed up. But there's a lot, a lot for a referee you have to do. You have to hold titles up. You have to do this. Time cues, and the most important part is when you go off the air at 11 o'clock at night, say like from Raw's, goes on from 8 to 11, the referee has to hit those cues for that match to go off for showtime by the end of 11, 11.05. If you go past that time, it costs the company thousands and thousands of dollars. How important is a referee during a match? How much do the wrestlers rely on you? Hulk Hogan said recently in an interview that during his WrestleMania 18 match with The Rock, that you told him that the NWO were coming out at the end to attack him, which wasn't planned. Can you talk to us about that? And can you think of any times where you have to pass messages onto the wrestlers? Yeah, yeah, I totally remember that. And yeah, I mean, they wanted to see, that was the most unbelievable match because that match there was always complications during the day and conversations whether that match should be on last now that match was third to last and I remember Chris Jericho running around all day going that match should be last Hulk Hogan and The Rock should be the last match you know um, they they weren't too sure how the crowd was going to react to this iconic and iconic match like here's uh, an icon another icon of wrestling and of course, you have Hulk Hogan that's been in there for many years and coming off with NWO, coming back to WWE and The Rock. And, you know, at this point, you got to remember when Andre let Hulk Hogan beat him, Andre passed the torch to Hulk Hogan. 
And then at that time in 2002, this torch was going to get passed on to the rock. And so we were very skeptical how the crowd was going to react to everything. But boy, did they react like it was unbelievable. It was, um, and here's a crowd shot. I don't know if you can see it, but 68,000 people. Now, 68,000 people. There wasn't 82,000 people like there was in London, Wembley, or 90,000 here. 68,000 people made it sound like there was 200,000 people in there. They were so crazy when Hulk Hogan came out right off the beginning. I mean, it was just so easy to cry. I had chills and goosebumps. It was just, and at that time, I'm in the business 17 years at that time. And that was just, it was incredible. I've never heard a reaction from a crowd in 17 years like I did here, there in Hogan in Toronto Skydome. So a referee has a lot to do with everything. And they decided that at the end of the match that because of that, they wanted to turn Hulk Hogan more of a baby face and back into his yellow trunks and to his old Hulkamania stuff. So at that point, that's why they brought NWO, uh, NWO down there to turn back on Hulk Hogan so he can go into his other character, back to his old character. The Rock v. Hulk Hogan is probably the greatest match of all time between the two most famous people in WWE. What was it like working with those two and being in the ring with them? Uh, it was it was such a fantastic time. At that time, did you really, did I know 21 years ago, 22 years ago, that that was going to be like an iconic and legendary match? No. But I knew it myself that it was a fantastic match with working with The Rock when he came in and working with Hulk Hogan all those years. And that's that's one of the reasons why I actually have that shirt from 2002 to Sky Dome signed by The Rock and Hogan because I, I knew it was going to be something later on down the road. And it meant, and if it wasn't going to mean everything to everybody else, it meant a lot to me. So that's, and I did get that shirt signed and I didn't really do that too many times in my, my career, but that time I did. So that's why I have that shirt there, the rock and Hogan signed. Alyssa, do you want to do, sorry, num- number eight. Number eight. Catch gotcha. During your career, you took a lot of bumps from wrestlers. Is that one that stands out as the scariest or the biggest one you took? Yeah, there's there's quite a few bumps I've taken. I've got to say, um, I, I think one of the best bumps I like was with Shane McMahon when he, I was running <laughs> down to the ring. Just, I thought I was going to save the day and everything, but then he just comes and pow, just tackles me almost into the steps, and I went flying like off my feet, like three feet up in the air, and just went flying almost into the steps. Uh that was the great bump. The crowd went nuts. Shane was happy. I was happy. Um, and there's quite a few bumps. One bump, uh, actually, I met Johnson. He tried to get me over the top rope, and he couldn't get me clear over the top. And I wound up hitting the end of the ring on the outskirts on the steel and all that stuff. And oh. I was in the hospital for a couple of days. So, But I had a stinger, and I couldn't feel anything in my body for a little bit. But it Ouch. came back to me. So. Yeah, but no, those things happen, you know, things happen. I've seen some really bad things in wrestling happen, unfortunately. But um, I was, unfortunately, I was okay. So, yeah, but there's a lot of broken noses, uh, torn ligaments in my knee and shoulder and rotator cuff and bicep tears and stuff. But that comes because wrestling is a very, very physical sport. Very physical sport. It is. Even though it's choreographed, it's a very, very physical sport. 
the wrestlers shouldn't attack the referees, should they? <laughs> well, that's why it's called disqualification. <laughs> that's true. They shouldn't. They shouldn't be putting their hands on the on the referees. That is correct. That is. So they do it anyways. What's wrong yeah, they, with them? Oh, I know they get a little cuckoo in there. That's for they sure. They clearly get hit in the head too many times. <laughs> that's right. That could be it too. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right, Alyssa. That's true. How many times in your career have you been counter free for a pinfall and then someone has pulled your leg and dragged you out of the ring and smashed you into the floor? Those look like they hurt. Yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do, though. Um, yeah, that's happened several times in my career. Um, yeah, one time when I um, I got pulled out right before the end of my career, I I got pulled out and I wound up hitting my shoulder on the ground. If you land wrong, but you can't help that. Um, and it wasn't the wrestler's fault or anything. It was just, I landed wrong and I winded up tearing my bicep and, and uh, rotator cuff and so forth. So, it, and that's where I went into surgery. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of times you can get hurt. I've gotten pulled out by Pat Patterson and hit. And sometimes you get stiffed on a punch, you know, it's called, you know, reset potato, so they hit you a little too hard, but that, that's what comes with wrestling. So if you get hit too hard, you just ah, got to shrug, just shrug it off. And Mike, I just want to ask, you refereed some of my, my favorite matches. Um, yes. Kurt Angle, Shane McMahon, Kurt Angle, Lesnar, oh, yeah. Yeah. Rock Hogan, Rock Stone yes. Cold. Right. Um, as I mentioned, we spoke to Kurt Angle a few months ago on the podcast, and he recalled his match against Shane McMahon. Yes. Um which you were refereeing, he mentioned about the glass not smash, not smashing and, and all that sort of thing. What were your memories of that? And is it true that Vince Ooh. wasn't very happy with that? Uh, screaming in my ear, boys. Screaming. They were all screaming in my ear. Don't let him throw it. Do not let him throw him through the glass again. Because So there's, uh, there's guys that work in certain positions at a company and they work in props and this and and there's a stunt guy too, like a stunt guy, but he they it was glass panels that were supposed to break. And there's certain panels that were up there. And you only they only like rigged up the certain breakaway glass panels, and that's the ones he was supposed to go through. But the glass wasn't breaking. So I actually thought at one point, are we at the wrong panel of the glass? Should we move over a little bit? But the glass wasn't breaking, and Kurt and Shane, and I wasn't stopping anything. Imagine me, Shane McMahon in his career at that time. He had a lot to prove. He's in the business. He's a wrestler now, okay? Part owner of the company. He's got a lot to prove coming to the table, and you're wrestling against an Olympic, Olympic champion like Kurt Angle. And he, Kurt Angle is like a brick house. He is just a strong, strong machine, you know? And, I mean, he can go. He can go. So, you know, Shane had a lot to prove. And as I'm getting yelled and the glass is not breaking, they're screaming in my ear to stop the match. Tell him, don't put him through. I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop the match because if I stopped the match, it would make Shane McMahon look bad, first of all. You know, and Shane's a tough cookie. He can go through anything. He'll, he can come off steel cages. He'll come off the top of steel cages and onto tables. And he's a daredevil. You dare him, he'll do it. So at that point, I knew Shane had a lot to accomplish and, and achieve in that match, and he sure did. He went through it all. And I remember screaming at Kurt on his right side. And uh, 
And I kept screaming, Kirk, don't do it again. Don't throw him through this glass. Do not throw him through this glass. And he kept trying and he tried. And then he finally just, he threw him right through the glass. And I'm going, ah. So, I mean, Shane's cut up. He's got glass in his head, everything. And it's just, I'm like, wait a minute. This is not the fake glass. I'm like, this must have been the real glass, you know, or something. But Shane got through it all. And we're talking. And I remember Shane's dad, he left him. He drove back to Connecticut without Shane in the car. So Shane had to find his own ride home. Um, there was a little bit of disagreement between him and his father at that time. And I go up to Kurt and I said to Kurt, I said, Kurt, I said, man, brother, I said, I was screaming, telling, did, did you not hear me or anything? He goes, he goes, oh, were you, were you trying, were you on my, my right side? He goes, I can't hear out of my right side. Like, well, and I'm like, what? You never told me that before. I'm like, are you ribbing me? Are you joking with me? He's like, no, I can't hear out of this side. It's like, you know, from wrestling, cauliflowered ear. And I'm like, oh my God. And, you know, but Kirk gets into a zone too, where he's just on fire. And when you're in, you're in that intense moment, the crowd screaming and you're, you're going through this match, you know, you're kind of in a zone anyway, you're in a zone. And sometimes you, you're just focused on what you have to do and you're not focused on what anybody's screaming or what the referee's telling you. So, um, yeah, it was some dangerous situations. And I remember, I remember they were giving the big angle slant off the top and they were on this piece of board, this piece of little board, and it was slipping off the rope as Kurt was getting up there to give it to him. The board's slipping. And I just reached out with my left hand, if you ever noticed, and I just holding that board as much as I could with the left without making it look so obviously. And I remember Linda coming up going, oh, my God. Linda McMahon says, thank you so much for holding that piece of plywood because that could have been a disaster up on the top rope. And I'm like, you noticed that, Linda? She goes, oh, I sure did. I said, yeah, no problem, you know. But um, me and Shane were very happy about that match at the end of the night. Um, Shane proved himself, and Shane always has to prove himself, you know, being the part owner of the company. But Shane, what a career he's had, what a wrestler he's he's become, you know, and he's a great person, Shane, great person, very good friend. Another iconic match you were involved in, was that the one – no, it's because um, Kurt Angle was mentioned again. And um, it was WrestleMania 19 um, with Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar. Yes. Probably remembered um, for Brock jumping off the top rope and missing Kurt Angle. What are your memories of that? And as a referee, how do you assess if a wrestler is hurt? And what do you do um, because Brock looked really hurt? Yeah, he did. I mean, I don't think if he wasn't so strong with his traps and his upper body and everything, I think he would have probably broke his neck. But being so strong and that man was just, um, he came down and just fell just a little bit short. I kind of knew that Kurt Angle was way far out there, but I really didn't think, I thought Brock would hit it. And I remember telling Brock as he's coming off that top, hit that Brock, hit it. Um. Going into that match in the beginning, Kurt Angle already needed surgery on his neck. He was banged up with a f quite a few injuries. Brock Lesnar had a couple things going on, but and when that happened at the end of the match, Brock was strong enough. You can tell his eyes were really blurry, and and that that means you're you're pretty much in a concussion protocol there. His eyes were really glassy and blurry, and I was just like, "Brother, are you okay, Brock? Are you okay?" 
And he was just like, oh, yeah. And he was just fighting through it, fighting through it. And he fought all the way through it to the end to finish that match, which I give him 110% credit for doing that because I don't think too many other wrestlers would have done that. But Brock and Kurt, what a hell of a match. And you're talking about two Rama Bulls, two Bulls just going at it. Because they, you know, they are one of the strongest in they were collegiate wrestlers. Brock's a UFC fighter. Kurt's Olympic champion. These guys had a lot to prove. And every time they fought in the ring, they they gave their 110% all out. As a referee, especially during the Attitude Era, you would help the wrestlers uh, to cut themselves with a blade. How did you used to do that? And is it true that you got in trouble with Vince once for helping... Dave Batista. <laughs> that is true, and actually, like I, I do, what? I live in I live in Tampa, Florida here now. I've been here for four years, and actually, that show was in Tampa, Florida. Um, so I was off for a couple weeks, and I had a weekend. Actually, I had one week off, which gave me almost two weeks off. But they had a meeting like the week before this pay per view, and Batista and Jericho were in the pay per view. So, and I remember. Uh, it was supposed to be like, you know, we just did that all the time. We always gave blades to the wrestlers or we have, we'd have a backup blade. They would have a blade. I would have two of them, one in one pocket, one in the other. So a blade would be, it would be a piece of a razor blade and they'd break them off and certain things. It's a very sharp little point. And they would put tape on it so they can hold it by the tape. They would just cut themselves and so forth. Um, <laughs> So yeah, they would cut themselves a little bit. Yeah, just Why? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was just for No, they should but why? I was I waiting know. for your reaction, Alyssa. Yeah, Alyssa, it was you know um it was a thing that you know pro pro wrestling did for many years, you know, in in the sixties and seventies and in eighties and nineties and stuff. But um yeah. yeah, so they, yeah, they would cut themselves just to you know, unfortunately, at that time, a lot of people would like to see blood on TV, you know, and if it was bloody and, and the fight was going on and somebody's bleeding, you know, unfortunately, people did like to see that. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't like to see it too much myself, believe me, you know, I didn't want blood all over me as well. But, uh, yeah, so I, I come in, Dave says to me, Dave Batista, he says, hey, Mike, he pulls me over, he says, Kyoto, he's like, um, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to get a little juice here in the match, and they call that juice and getting a little blood, and I said, okay, cool. He goes, oh, I'll give you one blade. I said, well, give me two in case I lose one or I can't get to one, I can get to the other one. So, uh, yeah, I wound up uh, giving him the blade during the match and everything, and this happens, and, you know, he he's bleeding and stuff like that, so... And then we're actually, we're going, we're going to the UK the next day. We're going to London, the O2 arena, right? So I get a call from Chris Jericho in the morning before we get to the Tampa airport to fly out to somewhere, then get to the UK. And Chris Jericho says, hey, the old man's hot. We got heat. I said, what do you mean the old man's hot? Who, Vince? He's, yeah, he's steaming hot, man. We're steaming hot. We got heat. I said, what do I got heat for? He's like, well, you gave Batista the blade. I said, yeah, like I've been doing for the last 20 years of my career or whatever. I said, what's what's going on now? He goes, well, we had a meeting last week. Weren't you in that meeting? I said, no, I was off last week. He goes, yeah, we're not supposed to do that anymore. I said, what? I said, nobody told me that. 
So we get to the O2. We, we, we fly to London. Then in the morning, we get to the O2 around, I guess, 11 or 12 noon, 11 in the morning. And so we have a meeting with Vince, and it's Jericho. Dean Malenko is in the meeting. He was the agent. And Chris Jericho, Dave Batista, myself. And Vince is hot. And so now with these new HD cameras they got and all this stuff, they show me and circle it and me passing a blade, which I used to be very discreet and you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know I was doing that. So they, and Vince is saying, see, you gave him the blade. Now at that time, when you're in a meeting with the big bosses and you really just, you kind of can't explain yourself and say, oh, this, this is why I didn't this why I wasn't at the meeting I was off this week you just got to take take the ass whipping kind of at the meeting and the yelling and the screaming um and just take it so there was fines given out I personally wouldn't be able to do that I would probably (laughs) lash out right on back (laughs) well that's good they want to yell at me they better be ready to get yelled at back all right Alyssa I like that (laughs) that's a good that's good um, but at that time, I'm trying to keep my job too now, Alyssa. So, <laughs> and so uh, they start handing out fines, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm looking around, and every all the wrestlers make way big more money than the referee. So I'm thinking, man. So he starts off with like uh, Dean Malenko, five thousand dollars, and this one, five thousand, and he gives. Jericho, I think almost like a $50,000 fine or something. And he gave Dave Batista like a $100,000 fine. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, well, at least I my fine should only be like maybe $1,000. And he goes, and Kyoto, do you have anything to say for yourself? And I'm like, no, sir, not at all. He's like $5,000. And I'm like, what? How did you pay for it? Uh, well, I thought I was going to be working a whole tour for free. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking, wow, the next 14 days in Europe, I got to work for free. So uh, Dave, Dave Batista came up to me and uh, he gave us he gave us all a check and he wrote out the check for five. And I didn't want it. I told him, look, I'll, you know, I, I, I live and die with you guys. So if I get fined, I'm, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. You know, it's my own fault, even though I didn't know. And they all knew I wasn't at the. They found out I wasn't at the meeting when they were stopping all this. But here's the thing. If Dave wanted me to do it anyway and I was at the meeting, I would have done it for Dave and and and, and the show anyway. I would have done it for him. Um, you you live with these guys on the road, you become a, a tight a tight guys, like you become brothers. And you look out for each other, you take care of each other, and that's all you have on the road. So uh Batista wrote me out the check and he was like, You better take this. He was like, I'm giving everybody a check and this and that. Dave Batista paid my fine, which is a very stand-up guy for doing that. And he paid everybody else's fine. He paid everybody's fine. And um, that's the kind of stand-up guy Dave Batista is. He's a very he's a very nice guy, Dave. Hmm. Actually lives in here in Tampa too as well. But um, yeah, that was a that was a tough day. And that 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 meeting went down at the O2 in the locker room in London. Yeah. So it was a long flight, you know, because when you got to fly all that travel away to get to London and you're thinking, oh, my God, am I going to get fired tomorrow? Am I going to have a job tomorrow? <laughs> so, but um, it all turned out OK. Glad to hear it. <laughs> I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. Really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Mike. We yeah, really sorry. enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much for us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, very welcome. And thank you, Alyssa and Thomas and Adam, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, supporting me throughout my career and everything. And God bless England. God bless the UK. Much appreciated. Anytime you guys want to do this somewhere down the road, let me know. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.